in 2015, when we were recruiting, every single candidate was like, why isn't Uber going to kill you? They have the war chest. And ultimately, mm -hmm. the reason why they didn't was because we had a better strategy, we out-executed them, and we had better people. Hey there, you're listening to Paradigm Shift, a podcast about people building the future and pivotal moments in their journey. I'm Ashish, and I'm joined by my main man, Zane. And today we're super excited to speak with Nolan Church. Nolan is one of the best HR leaders in the world, and he's currently the founder of Continuum. Nolan started out as a recruiter at Google, where he helped scale a new org from zero to 80 engineers, and was later head of talent at DoorDash during its hypergrowth phase, where he hired 700 people in under three years, which is amazing. And then finally, he was the chief people officer at Carta. As the founder and CEO of Continuum, he's making top talent accessible to any company on demand through a marketplace. We want to thank Ashley Davis and Jessica Stolbach for contributing some great questions. And with that said, thanks so much for coming on, Nolan. Thanks for having me on, guys. So there's a lot to cover. I think we're all sufficiently caffeinated. But they break down in three large categories. The first is, would love to hear about how you got into tech, your experience at Google, DoorDash, and Carta, three just incredible companies. Next, we want to hear more about what you're doing at Continuum. And lastly, we want to hear some advice that you would have for starters and founders around hiring. Uh, really big challenge this day and age. So why don't we start at the top? So going back, we heard you were a collegiate baseball player and ended up working at Google. Can you tell us about that story? How'd you go from an athlete to working at a tech company? Yeah, for sure. So I, I actually think the best way to tell this story is to first start with my wife. And I think it's like one of the biggest life hacks is to marry up, which I did. So I finished playing at the University of New Orleans and I went home to Arizona for three days. And I was looking around at what all of the people who had graduated a couple of years in front of me were doing. And it was all like inside sales and customer service jobs. And I just knew that wasn't for me. So I told my mom, I said, mom, I'm going to pack up my two-door Honda Civic and I'm going to max out my credit card and I'm going to go move in with Ashley. And so my then girlfriend, now wife, Ashley, she was playing softball at Stanford. She was national player of the year as a junior. And I finished before her. And so I moved up there with basically three or four weeks left in the Stanford semester. We slept together on a twin bed. You guys can't tell on Zoom, but I'm 6'4". So like how that worked, like I still don't really remember. But I end up, I get up there and I had no, no connections, no plan, no network. I grew up like a poor kid, just my family trying to make ends meet. Didn't know anybody in Silicon Valley. My best friend had a friend of a friend in recruiting at the Apollo Group, which is the parent company for the University of Phoenix. He helped facilitate getting me an interview as a recruiting coordinator. I literally didn't know what recruiting was. I thought just people like applied to jobs online and that's how like the whole system worked. I wore a tie to my interview. For some reason, I don't understand, gave me the job. Ended up there for about six to eight months. And then my first boss there ended up bringing me to Google with him. That's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about Google. Google's this massive recruiting machine, one of the most exclusive clubs on the planet. You were recruiting engineers there, right? And so you recruited a ton of engineers. And I think it's really interesting that you started out recruiting at Google and then had to recruit at startups, which is very different. So it'd be great to hear a little bit about that contrast. What did you learn at Google? How did they approach recruiting? What do you think they do well? And yeah, what were some of your observations? And then we'll talk about the other side of it with startups. You have to go back to, you know, 2012 was when I started at Google. So I was there from 2012 to 2015. And it's a much different company today than it was then. To your point, and it was quite exclusive. I remember Laszlo giving presentations about like how Google was more exclusive than Harvard. And I went to University of New Orleans, which internally we called the University of No Opportunity. So I felt like pretty cool that I got in. But Honestly, my experience at Google was, I would just define as lucky. Like I got really lucky. So I started as a contractor. I got converted nine months and I was a recruiting coordinator and they tapped me to do leadership. And so I was like shepherding candidates from Larry Page's office 
over to Patrick's office, over to Susan's office. Like, it was insane, the, like the level of people that I had access to. So I did that for a little while, did really well. And then they tapped me to be the note taker for People Operations Hiring Committee. And so for those that don't know what hiring committee is, it's the way that Google makes decisions off of every candidate. And so recruiter comes in, they give a 30 second pitch on why they think the candidate should be hired for Google. And then you have this committee of people that ultimately makes the decision. And at this point in time in 2012, 2013, the committee consisted of all of Laszlo's direct reports. And in my opinion, like the best people leaders in the world. And so a lot of people end up going to get their MBA and stuff like that. Like I got my MBA listening to them debate about every single candidate from like punctuation and grammar errors on the resume to like team effectiveness conversations to you name it. They talked about it. And I was the fly on the wall that was taking all the notes. Hmm. So I did that for about six months as like part-time job. And then ultimately I was the sole recruiter on the project that was trying to launch satellites in the low earth orbit to form a constellation, to beam internet down to very remote areas of the globe where it didn't make sense to build Google fiber. So like Sri Lanka, it just doesn't make sense. And so how do we do that? Everyone today now is like talking about Starlink. Like we were way ahead of where Elon was, but for political reasons and stuff that I can't really get into, we hired 80 people from the best places in the world, Northrop, Lockheed, Raytheon, Boeing, and ultimately we had to shut the project down. And so my experience at Google was just like, it wasn't the typical, oh, go be a tech recruiter in the machine for volume recruiting. It was like, go do the really bespoke stuff that is super unique and we're figuring it out on the fly. Yeah, a couple of questions about hiring committee. I know that's a very Google thing and kind yeah. of controversial. It, it clearly works for them. What were your thoughts on that as a part of their hiring process? And I'm also like surprised to hear that it's staffed by Laszlo's direct reports and not a bunch of product and engineering leaders. For some reason, I, I always thought it was a bunch of hiring managers. Well, so there, to be clear, there's many different hiring committees, and I was the note taker for people ops hiring mm -hmm. committee. So mm -hmm. recruiting, HR, and people analytics were the three areas in which we ultimately had signal on and that we were providing feedback to Laszlo for. Here's my thoughts. Google operates out of an abundance mindset because they can, and they've earned the right to solve that problem. So in 2013, I believe, Laszlo did a presentation and there was something like 10 million applicants in the last year for jobs across the entire company. If you're a series A, B, C founder, you're lucky if you get like 100 applicants over the course, like all of your recruiting is outbound. And so for Google, because they had earned the right to solve that problem, they got to get really technical when you like get to that sort of scale. And I actually thought the processes made a ton of sense. I thought that they could have moved a lot faster, but candidly, they didn't have to. And Google was a place to where very seldom did we operate with urgency. And again, it was just out of necessity. We didn't really need to. Yeah. So my experience with hiring committee specifically was I thought it was an amazing check and balance on hiring managers and interview teams. I thought that it added significant value to those people because oftentimes the hiring committee would circle back with feedback specifically to an interviewer or to a hiring manager. And so it was never this black box sort of thing internally to candidates, it definitely is. But on the negative side, I would say just that like we moved slow and towards the end of my tenure at Google, we started losing candidates specifically to Facebook because Facebook was moving a lot faster than we were. And those were the things that I just don't think anybody really cared about because there was just this endless line to get into the door. And Nolan, just to like double click into that, from first contact to hire, what does slow mean? And then what was Facebook you oh know, my delivering God. at? I would say like on average, I think we were looking at something like 50 to 60 days. It was just excruciating, especially once I started recruiting and I was like working on this bespoke project we didn't have that timeline because like we were under the clock. And so for us, it was like the exact opposite than what volume recruiting at Google is. Facebook was at least twice as fast as us at that point in time. 
But these days, comparatively with startups, you could just basically move through the process in four days. One of the things that I did learn once we got into DoorDash is I do think it's important to move at the speed of the candidate, regardless of the size of the company. But again, when you're at Google size, you could just basically dictate the terms because of the line out the door. Right. And do you believe Google made fewer hiring mistakes because they were so deliberate? Ultimately, I think that's the trade-off, right? Like your precision in terms of getting a, a higher right. It's a great question. So I'm forgetting the name specifically of the project. I think it was like Project Aristotle or something like that, where they actually did the review of who, like, do we have data that says like our process is actually informing, like we know what we're getting and leads to top performers in the company. And it turned out like all the data points that they gathered, there was one guy who had correlation. Everyone else, it was just a total crap. Literally one person in the whole company. And so I honestly think the short answer is no, but I say that to then say, if we didn't have those processes in place, which I've seen, you often have hiring managers making decisions based off of timing needs. And so it's hard to say what would have happened without that, but I do believe because I've seen it, I don't think it would have been good. I don't think it would have been anywhere near the level of caliber of people that we were recruiting at that point in time. Right. So you do that from the best at Google and you have this incredible sort of exposure to like some of the top folks in the industry. And then you, you move to a really small startup at the time, maybe not really small, but much smaller than today, which was DoorDash. So maybe take us back to that moment. Why did you pick DoorDash? And what was the scale of the team? And what were some of the challenges when you got there? And then maybe we can get into how you approach recruiting and people ups there. Yeah. So let me be clear. If that project was still going on and we were like sending satellites in a low earth orbit and like doing that thing, I'd probably still be there. Because it was just like so fun. I think it's solving like one of the world's hardest problems that needs to be solved. And it just, it brought this like higher level calling to me of this needs to happen in the world. And so I am like on the ground floor going to do it. Let's go do that. When that project shut down, I took a step back and I said, what am I optimizing for now in my career and in my life? And the two things that I've always optimized for are learning and impact. And the opportunity for me at Google was, hey, go to the volume recruiting machine, pick up the pickaxe and just start chipping away at more software engineers. And that just wasn't interesting at all because like they had already built that gigantic machine. As this project shutting down, I did not look at all. And I got pinged by Kim Lee at Sequoia Capital. And so I give like really Kim all the credit for changing my life. And it's Sequoia. And I'm like, hell yeah, like I'm definitely going to jump on the call with Sequoia. That makes sense. And she's, hey, Nolan, there's this food delivery company that we invested in, and they've been looking for their first recruiter for a long time. Do you have any interest? And so at this point in time, in 2015, I was living in Menlo Park, basically on the border of Palo Alto. And literally, like every night, I was seeing all of these red shirts with dashers on University Avenue. And my wife and I, we don't have a lot of money, so we're not like paying for food delivery. But I'm like, I could see how this could be part of the future. And Amazon had already been doing a lot of stuff and like making impact. And I think they were doing two-day shipping at this point in time. But it just made total sense that you would want something faster. You would want something essentially immediate. And I did some research on the company and I was like, hell yeah, like I would love to have a conversation. And so my first conversation was with Tony. And Tony is the best recruiter in the world. I have not met anyone else like that is as compelling and as maniacal about a business that he cares about, like Tony is just, he lives and breathes DoorDash. And it's impossible to be in the same room as him and not feel that energy and not get excited about what they're building. Which by the way, that room was inside of an old animal hospital in Palo Alto that like the joke was with early employees, what was this room used for before we got here? But yeah, that was the reason I chose DoorDash was because one, like Sequoia backed it. Two, I intrinsically understood that like real-time delivery was going to be a thing. And then three, Tony was just this compelling maniac that you just had to be on his team. That's amazing. So small side tangent, I spent a couple of years at Thumbtack 
And the reason I went there was very similar. Kim Lee pinged me. No way. <laughs> That's it was the exact same pitch. It was like, hey, first few PMs at Thumbtack. I should message her saying, why don't you ping me about DoorDash? <laughs> Kim's just changing lives out there. I hope Sequoia gets her outsized carry. Like, I really yeah. hope they do because like, she is amazing. That whole team at Sequoia is obviously amazing. That's like those people. But yeah, she changed my life and I gave her all the credit. She's just sent me a chart on our chat thread, which shows search volume in for DoorDash. And in June 2015, the, the search volume number is one basically zero yeah the next three years it's like a exponential chart and of course like covid was crazy so sounds like you got there like at an incredible moment relative to where we are today where there's been almost like 100x growth how big was the team and how did tony sell you what was his pitch so i was the 56 employee tony's pitch was we are building the real-time logistics network and so if you want anything to your door within an hour, we are going to be the people that deliver it to you. And again, like quite compelling. And basically with Tony, what people don't understand because now he's like on CNBC and you just see this like very polished CEO. What you don't understand is like, you ask the guy a question about the business and a lot of CEOs, I think stay at 75,000 feet. Tony is like, immediately in the weeds and he knows the lowest level of detail on every Mm -hmm. aspect of the business and so it was like here's the high level vision of like on-demand logistics got it makes sense but then you ask a question about what's the strategy we're going after the suburbs first why are you going after the suburbs first it's like we think like these customers are going to have a higher acv we think these customers are going to continue to leverage us as time goes on And it's way too competitive in the cities. And just every single thing is thought through when you interact with somebody like Tony. And so it was, yes, he had great answers, but also just like his passion behind those answers was like, this guy's not going to lose. Clearly, like not only did they not lose, they dominated a space in which Uber in 2015, when we were recruiting, every single candidate was like, why isn't Uber going to kill you? They have the war chest. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. the reason why they didn't was because we had a better strategy, we out-executed them, and we had better people. Yeah, totally. And I've interacted with a bunch of DoorDash folks, of course, you included. And I've noticed everybody was extremely focused, extremely detail-oriented, and customer-obsessed. And it sounds like that came from the top down. So help us get a sense of how you approached recruiting. So you were the first recruiter at DoorDash. Like, I'm sure it was tough going recruiting in a startup after Google, where you had basically like a million candidates wanting to join the company, literally. How did you guys build that muscle and then build the organization and the processes to then hire 700 folks? So I was really lucky that a lot of the hygiene was already in place when I showed up. There was definitely like interview trainings and hiring manager trainings and those sorts of things that we did over time. Tony was my first conversation. I was the 56 employee. The CEO is talking to the first recruiter in the first conversation. Like that just goes to show like how much they cared about hiring. So I get in and if I recall correctly, they had 80 open roles. We had just raised the Series B from Sequoia. We had all this money. We needed to go deploy it. We were expanding into new markets. Nobody had ever heard of us in these new markets. And we bifurcated the recruiting in two ways. So one was engineering, product, and design, and everything happening over there. And the other was just operations. And engineering, product, design was definitely hard, but the founders had a great network. Stanford was like the easiest place for us to recruit out of. We hired many early employees out of Stanford on the EPD side. And a lot of those people actually are still there today. Operations was actually the bigger challenge for us because we had no brand. And again, when you pick up the phone and you talk to a candidate and they've heard of Uber, they're like, why isn't Uber going to kill you? So what we did, which was super interesting, was we had this launch team. And so when we were opening up new markets, we would send launchers, usually two to a market at a time. And the launchers would be in those markets 
until we were able to hire like the local team that would backfill them. And we intentionally overhired on the launch team to give us the time that we needed to hire the people on the ground. And it did a couple things. Like one is it alleviated the time pressure. And so we didn't have that. We were able to like actually take our time to be super thoughtful and to go hire the best person for the job. But two, this is before Zoom interviewing became like a thing. And so most people like expected to be interviewed in person. It just, you know, we're a low margin business. Like we can't just like fly everybody out after the first conversation. And so we had people actually in market that could then, I would talk to the person first and then we would have like launchers go meet them for the second and third conversation to like really warm them up and also assess them. And then it's, so we had higher signal by the time that we were flying them out to Palo Alto, it was like, we knew we wanted to move forward with these people. And so I think that was like a really smart strategy that ended up working in addition to a number of other things that we earned the right to do over time, such as like introducing, we called it the analytics exercise, which is like this like 14 hour exercise that like only maniacs could actually finish. And if you actually finished it, like it gave a signal that you were super smart and that you like gave a shit because why else would you spend that much time like doing this thing? And then once we started solving those problems and we needed to continue to scale, it's not that hard. Like you build a capacity model based off of your historical numbers. You figure out how many recruiters that you need. You work backwards from that. You staff the recruiting team first and then you go execute on it. But the the core thing I just want to reiterate, which is like the hygiene was already there. And then I thought my job was to just continue to raise that hygiene bar internally. And what we did over time was First of all, operations recruiting got a lot easier because then we started like having a brand, having great people, but gets great people. And so like the ops team at DoorDash is world-class. You will see dozens of founders come out of that early team. And then the problem became engineering, product, and design. And everything was outbound-based. So I think of recruiting in three ways, inbound, outbound, and agency. And so literally everything was outbound. We were cold sourcing on LinkedIn and just like sending a million messages. Because we were low margin, we couldn't just hire an army of recruiters the same way that Uber did. And so we had to have our hiring managers do a lot of their own sourcing. And this is before Gem. Gem is now the the product that every team uses. And this is like pretty common to see a hiring manager to like outreach on, like our hiring managers were actually doing that work on their own. And so we did two things. One was we started to pool hiring, but if a hiring manager had sourced a candidate themselves, they had first right of refusal. And so it created this like very healthy competition amongst the engineering hiring managers to like actually, okay, if I only source 25 profiles a week and Anderson next to me is sourcing 150 He's going to build his team way faster than me. I can't have that happen. And so like, we basically turned the engineering hire managers into sourcers. That was the first thing we did. The second thing that we did hmm. was that we started to evaluate performance. Obviously, like you think about the core job and impact you're making on the business, that sort of thing. But then we also started to assess recruiting as one of those vectors of like, how are you actually performing? And so the hiring managers that thought recruiting isn't like moving fast enough for me, that no longer became an excuse for them and everyone became an agent and had to go solve the problem themselves. How much time was the typical engineering manager spending on, on sourcing? And I know you operationalized some of this through a weekly meeting or something. What was that process? Cause maybe that's something that's repeatable for folks listening. Yeah. So it was up to them is the short answer, but peer pressure is a very real thing. And so we leveraged peer pressure with the, the hiring managers that were just like really owners is the best way to describe them. Cause like over time we brought in new hire managers and they come in, they're like, what the fuck? Like I have to do my own sourcing. <laughs> and then you have Anderson like pumping out like 150 profiles a week and it's, he's getting all the candidates. So if you want candidates, like you probably should. So I would say per week, they were probably spending on sourcing alone my guess is two hours. It's not crazy. For an early stage company, like LinkedIn has 600 million members. It's not that hard. But then once we actually, if you account for all of the interviews, 
all of the debriefs. I would say hiring managers were, and then coffee chats, which is we had to, because nobody wanted to work at DoorDash in these days, like we had to like warm people up and go meet them in person and build like actual relationships with people. I'd say they were spending 50 to 70% of their time on recruiting. I love that. Yeah. As I'm sure many of our listeners can relate, typically the outreach is the bottleneck. Recruiters are often swamped with a hundred jobs that they need to be making movement on. And yep. this kind of distributes that responsibility through the org. And also I could imagine it would be more effective. Like on the receiving side, if I received a message from someone that I was working with and I could understand the way they think and understand their vibe and build respect for them and trust with them, that's going to make me like 10 times more likely to respond and engage with them. So I love that. It's table stakes now. Everyone's using Gem and you could just send a note on behalf of somebody, but then it was quite novel. And it was it was definitely the thing that we had to do compared yeah. to the Uber army. Because like they had more recruiters than we had employees in the company. Yeah. And that's what we yeah. were up against. Totally. So I, I want to transition to Carta, but before that, one last question on this. When at the time you left, right? Like I would imagine you went through different phases. You arrive, your first recruiter is yeah. like, go hire these five people that we need like ASAP. Then it was like, let's build out the infrastructure such that we can hire. And then you got this point where you were like scaling the org. But in the months before you left, could you help us understand what were your KPIs? What were you spending your time thinking about? Because that's a really unique phase where you had this brand that was ripping, you had massive demand for people, but also you had the brand and you had the infrastructure. So like on a, like a, not a week to week, maybe week to week, but like a quarterly basis, yeah. what were the things that you were trying to make happen? So a couple things, it's a great question. And I would actually say Tony built this into me and I would be remiss to say that like when I joined DoorDash, I'd never managed anybody before. I'd never built a recruiting team or recruiting strategy. I'd never interacted with the CEO or a board. And so Tony had, he started placing recruiting monthly reviews on my calendar, which really started to drive the behavior that like he wanted to see, which was super healthy, but also quite painful initially for me. Because again, I had no idea what I was doing. So we started doing that probably my fifth or sixth month in, and it just continued on for the remainder of my time for the next two and a half years. Towards the end of my tenure, we had about 800 employees. And what we were optimizing for were the input metrics that we knew that would then drive the output metrics we wanted. So number of candidates sourced was like the biggest thing. Because everything essentially still at this point in time with 800 employees was still outbound. And we just couldn't build a recruiting army to go do it. We had 30 people on the recruiting team when I left. So that was number one. Number two was close rate. So when you make an offer, you want that person to join. And there's nothing more painful than when you extend an offer and somebody declines because then you're going back to square one. And so our close rate Two, three quarters before I left on engineering was 52%. It was brutal. So if you think about all the time engineers are spending on this, that like, Jesus, like we have to improve this. And so a lot of that ended up being in partnership with our head of comp, our head of HRBPs, because like we had to increase comp, like we had to do a number of, we ultimately opened up more offices, let some people work remote. And this is all before we're post-COVID now. It's where this is standard shit. So we were tinkering with a lot of that because we had to by necessity. So offer accept rate was the big one. And the third one that Tony was like really driving into all of the leaders was you need to hire people better than you on your team. And so you guys talk to Ashley. Every, I appreciate the intro, but Ashley's really the best. And I was Ashley's recruiting coordinator at Google. Like she came in two levels above me. I just like magically convinced her to come work for me at DoorDash. And she's still there today. I would say like of the 30, probably 60% of those people are still there today. And so if you're able to hire people that are better than you, you're able to give them like insane growth opportunities, which is what we did that ends up being the foundation for how you can actually scale this thing into the hundreds and thousands of people on that team. So two quick questions on that. So the first is just about the what helped DoorDash succeed. So when you were there, the business wasn't 
crushing it. What were the big challenges? And like looking back, how has DoorDash overcome those? I think they might have done a down round around then. So what were the big like headwinds at the time? So when I, just to, to click in on the, the metrics, orders a day was the dashboard that all of us got every morning. We got an email every morning with how many orders we did last night. My first day, we had done 1,200 orders on the night before. Like we were operating in like three markets, I think at the time. So that was the North Star metric. But there was a ton of headwinds. So one was just in general, I'm forgetting the name of the company, but Webvan had tried this in like, early 2000s, part of the dot-com era, and they blew up and exploded. And it was like in Silicon Valley, you knew about that. It was a huge explosion. And so people seeing it tried again were like, I don't believe that you can do this. I've already seen, I've pattern matched and I've seen that this has failed. The other big challenge was like, it was very competitive. So Uber, Postmates, Caviar, Just Eat, uh, Grubhub, Seamless, and nobody was dying. Everyone thought people were going to die a lot faster and nobody was dying. Ultimately, what it came down to was we have to run a profitable business and we have to figure out like how to make this thing work. So you mentioned the down round. So that also happened. I'll never forget this. I think it was August or September of 2016. If you have Tony on the show, you should ask him about it because no one's asked him this question. He goes out to fundraise and it was the same week the S&P dropped by 10%. And so everyone came back and they're like, sorry, Tony, like the world's changed. And nine months later, he, he was able to close the rounds and it was flat, but with dilution was down. And so that then ended up getting into the tech press, which was like another thing that we had to overcome on the recruiting side. But again, if you just look at what they did, Really, like we set the foundation, but like everything happened when I left. It's just relentless execution on the North Star metrics, which was orders a day, ACV, and then unit economics. And that, that was it. That's all that team focused on. And they absolutely crushed it. Amazing. And so the other thing you mentioned was hire people better than you. I think it's pretty clear that DoorDash has hired really well, and you in particular have done that extremely well too, and you've learned from the best too, very clearly, like Tony, I know is great at this. How do you hire people better than you? <laughs> yeah. For me, it started like with my wife. So I like did it before, like I, <laughs> I recruited my wife who is way better than me, but you need to take a lot of shots on goal. It's I think ultimately like what it boils down to, and you need to act like you're in the big leagues all the time. So like my manager at DoorDash, Andrew Monday, who was my first manager for about a year and a half, who was employee number one, Monday would like cold email everybody. Like he would cold email Laszlo Bach at Google and just ask him HR questions and Laszlo would fucking respond to him. And so when you just have this culture and this mindset of I'm going to take shots on goal and I don't care if the person doesn't get back to me or if they big league me or whatever it may be somebody is going to convert eventually. And that's what everybody did. And it really, again, it started with Tony and it worked its way down throughout the organization. Tony hired Christopher Payne. Christopher Payne is still there today as the COO and president. Tony hired Keith Yandel from Uber, who came in as general counsel, ultimately became chief business officer. These were all people that were better than Tony. And so he set the bar for everyone else because he just took a bunch of shots on goal and then all of us beneath him had to do the same thing. Otherwise, we knew he was going to layer us. And that was going to be our outcome if we didn't do it. So the other thing that I think DoorDash did really is give people the room to grow. So clearly you came in as a fairly early in your career and had the scope to lead all of recruiting and the opportunities to sort of grow with the company. How did they do that? And then how did you do that on your team? Like, how did you nurture that new driven talent and give them the space to grow, even though sometimes that requires certain risks, right? It was a company-wide philosophy, which is we would give you a very scoped job. So I, I ended up scaling to head of recruiting. I started as a recruiting manager, which meant like you're an IC recruiter with a bigger title. But the philosophy was if you come in and crush it, we will drown you with more responsibility than you could ever handle. 
And we will continue to do that until you break. And that's it. Like from the top down, from the earliest employees, it still works this way today with the nucleus of early employees that have skilled with the company. You just keep doing well and we will find problems for you to solve. And then if you can't solve them, then you get layered. It's breaking when the business isn't hitting its metrics or its goals. Yeah, that's the... So Tony is a student of Amazon. And so we instituted WBR. It felt like in my first couple of months, I don't remember the timeline specifically, but that was the scariest meeting you could ever imagine. What's WBR? Weekly business review. And so every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for three hours, every aspect of the business would be assessed. And so it wasn't like, oh shit, person over here, like it's three months later and they haven't done well. It was like in WBR, if you didn't know the answer to a question from Tony about your business, you would be dressed down in front of all of your peers. And you do that two, three times. It was like, okay, great. This person isn't operating at the level that we need. Like we need to make a change. And so it was very quick how this stuff happened. Nothing at DoorDash, nothing lasted a long time. If you weren't performing well, we all knew very quickly. And it wasn't just like a, oh, this backroom deal or this politics thing happened to manage this person out. It was like very clearly in front of your peers, you are now not operating at their level. And so that's how we would, it would be very much like a meritocratic environment They've since smoothed that out and made it a lot less harsh, I think, than it was in the early days. But that harshness, I think, in the early days fostered a culture of you need to execute on this or you will get layered. It's amazing. There's nowhere to hide if you're just like putting it all out in the open every week. Every week. Want to shift gears to Carta, another like incredible company that you picked very well. I'm sure most, if not everyone working for a tech company has had some experience using Carta. Personally, I use it all the time. I love it. Great product. How'd you end up there? And can you maybe expand on what were some of the challenges that you ran into when you landed? Yeah. So told you guys I've optimized for two things, learning and impact. So towards the end of my tenure at DoorDash, we had like the, the people problems, like at 800 people for me to go take on HR or people analytics or something other than recruiting, I no business doing it. And they frankly needed somebody at that point in time that had been there and done it before. And so for me, it was just like, oh, Nolan, keep doing the recruiting thing. And recruiting ends up being a machine. And like when you get to 800, it's not all that different to get to 3000 once you're at 800. For me, it's just like, I don't want to like go build this machine. I've already seen it at Google. Like I've solved this problem a bunch. Like I want to continue solving new problems. And so I started thinking about taking on like a broader role, which included HR. And Henry actually just cold emailed me on LinkedIn and was like, hey, we need a head of talent. And that was the note. And I was like, I picked up the phone, I talked to him and I was like, look, I'm not interested in head of talent. I want to come lead a people team and I want to try to do this. And here's my plan for how I would do it. And I'm ready for that step. But I know it's like a bet that you would have to take. And Henry responded back and he was like, come crush recruiting for six months. And if you do, you'll earn the right to solve that problem. And I did it. I took the opportunity. It was a big leap of faith. I ended up getting promoted in seven weeks. And then it was just like game on. The problems at Carta were very different than the problems at DoorDash was a very low margin business. It was operations heavy. And all of the infrastructure for recruiting was already essentially in place. And I just tried to optimize and make better. At Carta, it was a SaaS business that had unbelievable network effects that to this day are the strongest network effects I've ever seen. And at 300 employees when I joined, they had zero people infrastructure, people or recruiting infrastructure. And so it was just a totally different problem set walking into Carta than what I walked into at DoorDash. That makes sense. And can you expand on the network effect? Because I think some people might not understand that. It's a bit subtle in this case. It is quite subtle. And so essentially as a DoorDash employee, I didn't act like we didn't institute Carta until more than a year into my tenure. And a day I'll never forget is the first time I got the vesting email from Carta with the confetti. 
And that was the first day I actually felt like an owner at DoorDash, even though I had equity. It was like this like living in invisibility thing that you never feel or touch. And Carta like actually made it tangible. Carta is a company that administers pre-IPO equity. It's, they do a lot more than that now, but that's essentially what it was when I joined. And what was happening was, is that they were getting all of the employees to accept stock certificates through the product. The other thing that they were doing was getting all of the investors to accept their stock certificates on the product. And because like before Carta, the amount of pain associated with getting early stage equity, whether you're an employee or an investor, was immense. Like they had physical certificates that would be mailed to you. Like it's fucking nonsense. And so once you started to have investors just have a dashboard with all of their ownership, investors then started to write in terms into term sheets that said, if I give you the Series A money, then you must sign up for Carta. And so that was an example of a network effect that I've never seen before in which like literally investors were doing all of the demand generation for Carta. It still happens today. Uncork invested in our seed and literally in the term sheet was you have to become a Carta customer. And so you have network effects like that, which ultimately spin the flywheel. And then it makes it almost impossible for competitors to come in and take out your business because like, why would I want to have three different dashboards? Like everything I'm doing is on Carta. And so you have this insane lock-in because of that network effect. Amazing. Let's talk a little bit about equity because you've seen how like probably more companies do equity than, than just about anyone given your time at, at Carta. It seems like one of the superpowers of Silicon Valley trading owners, but also it's so broken on so many levels yeah. where there's no liquidity. Employees have to spend a bunch of money to buy options, often that end up being worthless. Yep. What are your reflections on it? And how do you think we fix some of these problems? So there's a lot of problems. And especially for somebody like me, who's been an outsider to Silicon Valley and then cracked in, I had to learn the hard way and really hard lessons. Like I joined DoorDash after Tony had accepted or signed the Series B term sheet, which means that my strike price went up 700% from Series A to Series B. And I didn't know, like I didn't even know to ask the question. And so I would actually describe, if, if I was to say it succinctly, the problems with equity today, it's an insider's game. And so if your parents have lived through it, or if like you have somebody in your network that's lived through it, you have great access to know what questions to ask and to make sure you're asking those questions and getting the terms. If you were like me and, or you're underrepresented minority that's coming outside of Silicon Valley and trying to crack in, you have no fucking idea. And so you're just at the mercy of these companies. My wife interviewed, I'll actually give you guys the name of the company. My wife interviewed with Qualtrics pre-IPO. And a perfect example, when they gave her the offer, they said, we're going to give you a thousand shares. And she's okay. So because she worked, she's married to me. It's like, what's the preferred price? What's the strike price? What's the fully diluted total, share total count? Outstanding. Yeah. yeah. And they gave her nothing. They didn't give her any of that information. And they had 2000 employees that they recruited Insane. all under that sort of thing. Basically, those are the problems. We could go like, I could spend another two hours with you guys on the problems of this. Yeah. It also feels like employees get the short end of the stick. Either like the, the stakeholders, which are investors, founders, employees get like the shortest end of the stick. And, and I know Carta's trying to solve some of these and I hope they do because it's, it's- So say, you're right. You're a thousand percent, but I actually think it's changing. And so the way I describe this to people is like back in really in 2014 at Google, I started to feel like it's getting harder to recruit. It's not as easy as it was for my first couple of years. Then I got to DoorDash and I was like, fuck, it's like really hard to recruit to where it, now we're post COVID and you can work from anywhere essentially to where, oh my God, like now it's, it feels like it's entirely a candidate driven marketplace. And so I think part of it is that the power dynamic has shifted from employer to employee. And so now like employees like have more agency. So that's one solve is as VCs raise more money and they have to go deploy it, you still end up with like these millions of jobs that go unfilled. And so now like power is actually in the hands of employees. 
The second thing is transparency. And I actually think Card is solving this problem. Like Equity 101 launched a couple of weeks ago. It was like one of my proudest moments as like a former Carta employee. You have all of these like, like Serena Williams and like talking about equity, which is now available via a video online that didn't exist before, telling you what questions to ask, telling you what these terms mean. And so I think transparency is starting to change. But the third piece, which I don't think has happened yet, Cabal has written about this quite a bit, but today we live in a world in which ownership is about time. So like you come in, you get four-year grant, it vests, you have a one-year cliff and then vests monthly thereafter. It's all about time-based equity. Cabal and myself, I also agree with this. I think activity-based equity will be the future, especially as we get into different, like employees right now make up 95% of a late-stage company's workforce. Like we'll get into continuum in a little bit, but like part of the reason I started a company in this space is because I fundamentally believe that we're moving towards a new paradigm in which, yes, you will always have full-time employees, but I think you will leverage consultants, contractors, advisors way more than in the past because now opportunity is everywhere. It's not like you have to go work for DoorDash in Palo Alto. You can go work for On Deck anywhere. It's a totally remote first global company now. And so I think a lot of the changes are happening systemically because of the power shift from employer to employee. I love that. And I love your optimism. And I would agree with Zane in that it's a broken system and a lot of the times employees get screwed over. To push back on that though, like I've lived the success story and I felt it was like incredible. Like I was fortunate to be at the right company at the right time, everything. I, I must have spent hundreds of hours, honestly, researching yeah. all the nuances of stock compensation, but me and my you know cohort were fortunate to be really lucky. And now there's, it's really much, you know, thanks to Card and other platforms, easier to get liquidity. Even yeah. on the investing side, there's a lot more flexibility in terms of how you acquire equity and how you can liquidate it. That's slightly separate situated discussion, but it's becoming a lot more fluid. This is a great transition into continuum because I think you're solving a lot of the problems that you saw over the course of your career. Can you tell us the vision for Continuum? Yep. So Continuum is a marketplace for fractional executives. Today, we're hyper-focused on everything under the people umbrella. So HR, recruiting, people analytics, comp benefits, so on and so forth. The best way to describe the problem is, so I, I told you about at DoorDash, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Like, I'm basically just like figuring stuff out. Everyone says, go build your personal board of advisors. And I actually networked like crazy. But what I found was when I was in the shit and I was like trying to solve problems that I had never solved before, or like I needed help on a project and we didn't have the internal capacity to go do it, I hadn't established reciprocity in the relationship and I hadn't earned the right to pick up the phone and call the people that I had networked with who were better than me, who had solved these problems before to come help me solve the problem. So then I get to Carta, I'm like a year in, you know, my superpower is recruiting. Like I'm dangerous in people and everything else, but like really I'm good at recruiting and I'm reading TechCrunch every day. And Henry and Tony, who I think are generational CEOs are listed on like every goddamn article as like an angel investor. And I'm like, where is my deal flow? At this point in time, I had basically invested in maybe three companies, which was all through my own network or stuff that I had sourced. And I'd like cold outreach to the founder and when that founder has a problem, they text or email me. I'm re responding back within hours. I'm on the phone within 24 hours at maximum. I'm like talking to candidates. I'm rolling up my sleeves and I'm helping. I love Henry and Tony, but if they're on your cap table, the reality is if you have a problem, you reach out to them, you get scheduled for next month. It gets rescheduled five times. You jump on the phone with them next quarter and they forget like who you are. It's a different sort of value that you get. And so I started to have this thesis. I was like, if I have this problem and I'm a people connector, I bet other people have this problem too. And so I started talking to non-CEO executives. And it turns out now that after 600 of these conversations, when I ask about fractional opportunities, what we hear from execs is that, oh my God, I would love more access to consulting, advising, angel investing, but everything today is fragmented. Everything today is like all about these local maximums that you have. And so 
we believe that because this power dynamic has shifted from employer to employee, I actually think it'll be called contributor in the future, that ultimately now, if you're an early stage startup, like you can't hire me. And I say that as respectfully and as humbly as possible, but I'm never going to do this again full-time, ever. And if I wasn't building Continuum, I would be doing this. Like I would be an executive on the Continuum platform. And um, we believe that like these people who have agency, who have done this, who have a very specific skill or niche, that they are going to be in demand. And because they're in demand, they have to then solve the high quality demand generation problem is the first one. Then it's like contracts, taxes, invoices, payments. Then it's like business insurance. Then it's like, how do I market myself? Because every consultant's website looks like it's built in 1995 right now. And so we think we can verticalize the stack for executives and experts. And then on the company side, we want to ultimately build a global knowledge maximum. So when you have a problem, you're evaluating a trade-off, you need help with a project or you need an interim leader, you're going to the continuum marketplace to then get placed with an executive who can solve that problem within 48 hours and to help you move faster and scale faster. So that's the vision of what we're building. That's amazing. Ashish and I were talking about this and we both love the idea. We're so excited and we hope some of our listeners will sign up both as people hiring part-time executives and who are super specialized, like top 1% at what they do, yeah. and also people signing on to work with these companies because it can be extremely rewarding to help a bunch of different people instead of just one, one like company. Switching to a slightly more personal question. So going from a bunch of these high growth startups to doing a zero to one experience, I mean, this is a question from Ashley. What has been the most humbling part of being a first time CEO and founder? And is there anything that surprised you so far? <laughs> it's the most humbling experience that I've ever received in my life. And my, I didn't say this earlier, but my, my baseball team at University of New Orleans set the NC2A Division I record for losses. We went four and 50. So this was worse and way harder. But I think the, the biggest learning as a founder is that you don't know what's going to happen until you start. And for us, like we've always had this vision, but we didn't actually know what were the jobs to be done and how to figure that out. And so the most humbling part was going out and fundraising and hearing literally 75 no's. One of the smartest people I know that I really respect literally told me, Nolan, this needs a full rethink. And to hear that from that person was like stunning. And I remember like calling my co-founder after and I'm like totally in the doldrums. And Greg's like, no worries, we keep going. You just keep building. And so my biggest lesson is you just, you never know until you start and then you have to just, you solve problems and then you earn the right to solve the next ones. But it is quite a humbling journey. There's no doubt about it. That's awesome. Going back to the vision, I think it's amazing. In your view, let's say you were on the platform, right? You were at, you were C-level executive at Carta. Do you think there's a future in which you would be advising startups and your compensation, tying back to our equity conversation, is just as fluid as cash comp. Like at this point, a senior executive might expect to make most of their money in stock anyways, and might yep. be picking companies based on that. But traditionally consulting and at that level, has it's been hard to pay with equity. And I think that's probably held some people back from participating in that way. Is that something you think is going to be possible in the future? There's no doubt in my mind. And again, I think it comes down to activity-based equity is the solution to that problem. Now, like when you actually click in and you start talking about, well, how do I measure activities and what does right. this end up looking like? Like we're still like, that's exactly where we are in the journey. Up to this point, it's been primarily cash. We've unlocked equity for a handful of executives, but this is a behavior change for companies. The good news for us is as we solve this problem is we have the tailwind of, look, if you don't want to pay somebody in equity right now as a consultant, advisor, whatever it may be, then that's fine. Like best of luck solving your problems. And what ends up happening, it's so funny. Like we have this joke internally at Continuum is when we do a, a discovery call with somebody on the demand side and they don't convert. I would say now half of the customers on our platform initially said, no, thanks. Like this isn't for us. And then they come back and they convert later because the problems get more acute and more painful. And I think the same thing's going to happen 
with the behavior of paying cash versus equity for fractional, not even just executives, I think for just individual contributors. Like you're going to have to do it and it's going to be a norm that gets established because there is such demand for top talent. And in the future, you're not going to be able to own these people as you do today as full-time employees because they have so many options. And so that's where we think the puck is going. And, and that's the reason, one of the reasons we started the company. That's awesome. Definitely a super inspiring vision for the world. And I know I would want to live in that world. So I hope you can make it come true. Switching gears a little bit to advice for founders. You've been at every stage of growth at this point. So you're doing a startup now. You've been at a Series B company, at a really mature yeah. company, and at like a monster company, which is Google. Most startup founders don't think about HR in a particularly strategic or proactive way. Yeah. What advice might you have for founders at different stages? How should a seed stage founder think about HR? And how should a Series A or B founder think about it and then a growth stage founder? I get asked that question so much. I have a deck now to answer it. So I'll try and be succinct and not give you the deck version. But essentially, at seed stage, I think you need an advisor or an investor that has an HR and or recruiting background, depending on which areas you are weakest. So the way that I think about leveraging my cap table as a founder is I want to go get angels that complement my skill set. If you're an amazing recruiter, right, and you have a background similar to mine, like you don't need more recruiting people on your cap table. Like you need product people, you need engineers, you need designers. And that's where we've spent a lot of our effort and our focus going to get those people. But for the most part, like you're not an amazing recruiter if you're a founder, you're not an amazing HR person, and yet you have this amazing talent pool of people in the last five to 10 years that have solved some of the hardest problems with recruiting in HR that are very relevant to the problems that you're about to solve. Go bring them on as an advisor. And we see a lot of this with Continuum customers today. They're coming to us and then they're engaging for three hours a month. And it solves a huge problem for a founder. So I think that's the, the case at the seed. I think generally speaking in rough terms, at the A is the time when you need to go out and hire your first recruiter. And so like you need to go hire somebody that is insanely growth-minded, that is a hustler, that has like high trajectory and high potential. Somebody that looked a lot like me walking in DoorDash. Like we actually struggled with a lot of the people who had been there and done it many times before who had 15 years of experience. I think you need to hire an up-and-comer and then help that person by getting them an advisor so they can learn from somebody because they won't be able to learn from anybody internally. Really, once you get to Series B and Series C, it's time to start to bring in the people who have done it before. And usually you still have to give these people a step-up opportunity because there is a supply and demand mismatch right now in this market for people leaders. Like People who have done it once don't want to go do the exact same thing again. And so oftentimes you have to go out and try and hire somebody who's like own one piece of it, like me with recruiting. And then at Carta, I get the opportunity to go build both. But I think it changes at every stage. And at every stage, you should be optimizing for somebody internally that can help you get the job done what you need. And then externally to cover your blind spots, to help you see around corners and to help you avoid those landmines. And I think the best way to do that is as an advisor or an investor. Yeah, I think the insight about learning from others is a big one and resonates with me. I remember reading something recently where like a rough framework, something like 70% of what you learn is by doing, 20% is from others, and 10% is by reading and courses and structured learning. It seems like there's a lot of stuff in that 10%. And of course, a lot of people are doing the 70%, but that 20% is like a big gap. I think that's sort of what you're solving for at Continue. Especially when you think about the cost of a mistake. I know because I made all of them at DoorDash. It's expensive in terms of money. It's expensive in terms of time. And it's expensive in terms of your political capital. So like when I would get something wrong at DoorDash and we'd have to like go start over or go take a different path, again, like we, because we essentially you live in fear of getting layered, like shit, like I can't get too many of these wrong. One thing I want to be clear about saying is like getting an advisor doesn't mean you just listen to them blindly right? But like the experience of somebody who has been there and done it, I did not appreciate earlier in my career. And that now it's, it doesn't mean I have to follow exactly what they did, but to at least hear the war story of the problem that I'm trying to solve adds a tremendous amount of value and input into my decision-making. 
And again, a lot of founders are first principles thinkers. I am as well. I totally believe in that. But to really inform first principles thinking, you have to understand how other people have tried to solve the problem. And so I think that's another important thing to, to think about when you are engaging an advisor. Yeah, totally. It's also an unbiased outside perspective because within the company, there's so many like biased perspectives. Totally. One last question before we jump into our closeout. So this is one I have to ask. It's a general broad question, but what makes a good recruiter? What have you seen in like the top 1%? So that what's really interesting is that it actually has nothing to do with experience. As I said, like experience ends up being a negative as time goes on. And I'm actually a perfect example of this now. Like I told you, I'm never going to go do it again. And so as recruiters get more experienced, in general, they get tired of sourcing. They get tired of doing the grunt work, which is actually what makes a great recruiter. And so I think what makes a great recruiter is somebody that is an extreme hustler. The early DoorDash team was like, frankly, like we did a really good job of recruiting for the recruiting team. And a lot of those people had an intrinsic motivation to them to just go and grind, whether it be they were division one athletes, whether they came from underrepresented backgrounds and were trying to prove it for themselves or their families, there was something in them that they were motivated internally versus they needed external motivation. If you need external motivation as a recruiter, it's over because the job is just a grind. Yeah. Two is you're optimizing for somebody that has high trajectory and high potential. And so like betting on people, I think early in recruiting is really smart because you can then like have them solve more problems over time. And like, then they have a career path and then they could solve new problems. And that also fosters them staying with you, which today in recruiting, it's like, I would say the average tenure of recruiters probably 14 months. People are jumping around all the time. And what about from the perspective of a founder or a hiring manager who's trying to close a great candidate? What makes someone a great recruiter in closing someone who's outside their league? Yeah. So part of it is you have to be a good salesman. Recruiting is very analogous to sales in many ways, but you have to be a good salesman of the vision, like where are we going with this company, the role, like why this role is great for the person and tailoring that conversation for that person. So when I have recruiting conversations with folks, it's never the same conversation. It's all meeting the candidate where they are at. And then three, you have to have a good team. Like you have to have a good foundation. So it's not just you. It's every touch point. Like if you really want to hire the best people, like at this point in time in 2022 with Zoom and I can work everywhere, like I'm not going to take a discount. I'm just not. And most of my peers and people that I've worked with that are phenomenal are never taking another discount again. Makes sense. So Nolan, we've got a, a bunch of questions that we ask people at the end of the show. Ashley has actually submitted some really great questions. So we're going to swap out some of our normal questions for these. Yeah. The first one is, I think, a question that you like to ask people, which is, what is the most challenging or difficult feedback that you've received? And how have you processed it and incorporated it into your work going forward? So I've asked this question. I ask it to every single person. I've asked it thousands of times. And my frame on it is, what's the most difficult feedback you've received? And then there's like a number of follow-ups after. So the most difficult feedback I've ever received was from Henry. And all good feedback. It just, I still think about it now. It like stops you in your tracks. But Henry asked, or Henry told me, Nolan, you often tell me what could go wrong, but you seldom tell me what could go right. And what he said underneath that, Henry's like very eloquent speaker. And so he could have just said like, Nolan, you shit on everyone else's idea. Because I was at that point in time in my career, I was way more pessimistic I realized that I had a very narrow mindset. And especially when I was interacting with people that were changing the world, like Henry, that had like never solved problems before, that like when you tell them they can't do something, they actually look at you as you're not a thought partner, which is what I always wanted to be to all of my business partners, especially the CEO. You're somebody that they don't want to interact with. And so the way that it's changed me is I think about it every single time I interact with another founder. And his frame is perfect, which is instead of thinking what could go wrong, think what could go right. 
And that is now exclusively like not only in my interactions with founders, but like family members, friends, hearing new ideas. I am now somebody that people like to ideate with versus, you know, your typical naysayer. I love that. That's such a good inversion. Second question is also from Ashley. What are you optimizing for at this point in your career and how has that evolved? It's changed so much. I'm still learning an impact, but that's actually down the list. I have a three-year-old and a two-year-old and my wife and I have been together now for 12 years. The first thing I'm optimizing for is being a present and good father and husband. The second thing that I'm optimizing for is being a world-class CEO. And then the third thing I'm optimizing for is being a good friend, son, and member of my community. The great goals. Last question is around superpowers. Everyone has a certain set of skills that they're eerily good at, that feel play to them, but work to others. Are there some, any superpowers of yours that you've identified that you like to lean on? I think recruiting is, is like the skill that like I've developed and really developed like towards the end of my tenure at, at Google and then at DoorDash and at Cardad. Now, especially at Continuum with hiring early stage employees is super hard, but I'm good at recruiting. But the thing underneath the thing is, is just understanding where people are at in their lives. And so when you ask somebody, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm good. I never take that as like the acceptable answer. I'm always the person like actually like clicking in and trying to listen and understand where people are truly at because that information then helps me recruit them or helps me design a career for them or helps me help them in some other way that I can't do without it. And so I would really say, I think my biggest superpower is just understanding where people are at in their lives and being a good listener. That's awesome. Nolan, this has been a fantastic conversation. I feel like I've learned so much. And I think there's a lot in here for founders to incorporate in their day to day. Thanks so much for coming on. And we hope to have you on again in the future. This is awesome. Thanks, guys.